We're continuing Mark 10, verses 13 through 17 as we work our way through uh, this gospel. Um, You know it's the shortest of the gospels. You know that not because of my preaching, but you just happen to know that. Um, (laughs) It'll be a while before we get to the end of this this short but uh, very significant testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. Just to give you kind of a picture of the context, what's taking place is that Jesus is now in the last few months of his life. Um, The direction of his ministry and where he's taking the disciples is up toward Jerusalem. So this is the very early part of the spring, perhaps even late winter, uh, during the season in which Christ is betrayed and then crucified, then leading to his resurrection. So we break into the story uh, where the, essentially this is happening after last week where we had the marriage story and the disciples ask him privately, probably in a house. And so we're in that context as we break into the text here. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And his disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Let's pray. Father, and help us to come to this text and your scriptures always in a sense, a humble sense in which we deeply need the working of your Holy Spirit to guide us into that which you have ordained to be recorded concerning your Son, the Lord Jesus, concerning his mission in this world, concerning his teaching, concerning the ways in which his teaching would straighten out our thinking, correct wrong notions in the way we see the world, and then guide us into the ways that are pleasing to you, all based ultimately upon what Christ would do for us in terms of his death and his resurrection. And so we would pray, grant us much of your Holy Spirit that we can gain much from your word so that we can prove to be as followers of Jesus salt and light to this world, even to this generation. In Jesus' name, amen. As I was mentioning, the the former story here in the text refers to marriage. Uh, Jesus reinforces the creation origin and definition and practice of marriage. Marriage as God designed it, marriage which is counter to the culture today, but it was also counter the culture in Jesus' own day. This story is about children. These two episodes sort of happen together providentially, uh, even within the same household where the disciples are asking Jesus about marriage and now parents are bringing, really we have to suspect it's primarily mothers are bringing their little children to Christ. Now the relevance of this passage is also just as contemporary as last week's discussion of marriage. Even as our 
culture has a marriage crisis, it also has a crisis about children. Our culture, its cultural leaders, educators, politicians, even many parents have wrong views about children and what children truly need. For instance, some cultural kinds of observations about children. If you have more than two children, you are, in fact, selfish. You are depleting the ozone layer. And you are enlarging your carbon footprint way too much. I have read all these statements, by the way, that I'm giving you now. Um, A child about to come into this world shouldn't. If her birth will interfere with her mother's career or upset her current boyfriend. It's always the woman's choice. It's perfectly okay to produce a baby with the tools of the laboratory in contrast with procreating a baby. Because this new way is so incredibly democratic. Everyone, single, couples of every sort, even triples if enough money is available, can purchase the manufacturing of a baby. Education is the most important thing for children. We need to start earlier. Every child should be in the safe and wise hands of of government professional educators as soon as possible, no later than three years of age. Enrichment. This is the most important thing for children. We shouldn't waste a child's childhood. School isn't enough. Music lessons, art lessons, dance lessons, martial arts lessons, t-ball lessons. They need these things because otherwise they would just sit at home totally addicted to screen time. You've read these things. You perhaps have observed these things. These are the messages that are constant within our culture concerning children. Now, once again, this passage, like with respect to marriage, doesn't say everything the Bible does, in fact, say about this particular topic and subject. It just doesn't cover everything. But it does give us three important perspectives that we need to know. Three guideposts. So let me abbreviate those guideposts this way. Culture and children. Christ and children. And then believing parents and children. What's the overall lesson that I want us to see in this passage? A child's spiritual welfare. Let me say that again. A child's spiritual welfare is far and above the most important need which children have. Translation. Children need Christ. This matter of children is a gospel issue. This is where we as parents and the church need to place our strongest emphasis and encouragement. Now, before I go any further, let me just say this. For all of us who are parents, have been parents, grandparents now, 
most of us can think about significant failures in our lives as parents, either episodes in which we have failed or just a sense that we didn't do everything right. This is not about guilt. This message is not about guilt. It's about guidance. Please understand that. This is, this is to help us, even in the midst of whatever we may have done wrong, to remember, well, what is the right path? And often out of the wrong things we've done, we see the right path more clearly. But I want us to see what this passage will teach us about the, the, having the right kind of concern as parents, and now for many of us as grandparents, with respect to children. Always remembering that their greatest need is Christ. That's what I want us to see. So first, let's look at children and culture, culture and children. We go to verse 13. Now the they that the text refers to here, they were bringing their children to Jesus, refers to parents. And I said it's, it's almost surely these were mothers more than just moms and dads. Mothers were bringing their kids to Jesus. Luke adds a detail that Matthew and Mark, they all three record this story. Luke records a detail that, that's not there in the other two. He specifically uses the Greek term for infant. Infants are being brought to Jesus. Now, not only infants, but infants are among those little children who are being brought to Jesus. Now, there's something else going on here, too. Clearly, these are parents who view Jesus from a deeper religious and spiritual perspective than many others. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, there were other parents who sought out Jesus. Remember, uh, earlier in the Gospel of Mark, there's Jairus, the synagogue leader. He specifically seeks out Jesus. Why? His daughter's dying. He, 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 he knows Christ can heal. And then in the next chapter, we have the story of the Syrophoenician woman, a Gentile woman. Jesus and the disciples had gone up there to, to get out of the bustling crowd to get some time off. But she hears he's around, and she travels to find him because her child is possessed by a demon, her little girl. But in this story, parents are not seeking Jesus with respect to any kind of healing. So it's not his miraculous power to heal that motivates these parents. Nor is this a story about demonic possession. So they aren't seeking Jesus to cast out evil spirits. They're seeking Jesus in order that he would lay his hands on them and pray and bless him. So we have to recognize in them they are believers at an even deeper level. At least the evidence is for a deeper level than simply Jairus or even the Syrophoenician woman whose faith was considered exactly very, very strong. The significant point here, though, is that these godly seeking parents seeking Christ are what? Rebuked by the disciples. And the disciples here represent a significant aspect of Jewish culture at that time. A rabbi was too important. A rabbi was just too busy. A rabbi shouldn't be bothered by the presence of little children. That was one of the cultural attitudes of the day. Or to flip this around. The attitude which the disciples display is this. Children are not important enough for someone as important as Rabbi Jesus to take notice of them. While it's right for children to be a primary family concern, it's not right to presume that they were of any concern to such an important religious teacher like Jesus, 
who, by the way, is most likely the Messiah. In essence, the disciples were behaving like handlers. You know, the kind of handlers who surround celebrities, who surround VIPs, sometimes politicians, uh, to keep the not-so-important people away. The disciples believed they were protecting Jesus from an unnecessary intrusion on his time, from some kind of distracting interaction, something that had no real bearing upon the kingdom of God. To put it this way, here's what the disciples thought. The things of the kingdom of God were for adults, not for children, not for little kids, not for babies. Jesus contradicts that attitude. So, what are the larger lessons we can see from this rather negative example of the disciples? Well, culture, cultural leaders, educators, politicians, even parents, can be very wrong in their views of children and what children actually need. And they can be very wrong about God's posture and position and concern for children. So practically, parents need to make sure that they're never like the disciples. They, that they do not themselves create obstacles or barriers to Christ with their children. Well, what would that look like? Let me draw a comparison. I have two friends who are pastors, more than two, but these two uh, each have uh, four children, ranging from middle school into high school. Um, And they both have said to me, I've listened to them talk about how their schedules, pastor, wife, their schedules are entirely organized around all that their children are engaged in after school. So, on, so it's, just, it's just incredible. Uh, they have both said to me that their lives during this stage is hectic. It's demanding. It's challenging. Thereby stressful. But that's how they've chosen to invest themselves into their children's lives. Personal investment is good. It's vitally important. But they are also pastors. So their children are in church every Sunday. And more. Their children are always under the ministry of the Word of God. Their children are always being exposed to other Christian adults who love Christ, who have an influence upon them in many spiritual ways, whether it's their Sunday school teachers or their youth group leaders or just godly friends of the parents. Now, in contrast, you've all seen a similar kind of parental investment in children. 13 years teaching at Bakersfield Christian High School, I saw this many, many, many times in various ways. However, personal involvement with their children to the neglect of the fellowship of the church to a neglect of the worship of God. So here are Christian parents who, like these pastors, have their schedules entirely organized 
around their children's extracurricular activities. But on weekends, Saturdays and Sundays, these children are greatly involved in all kinds of activities. Activities that are not in the church. And so we find that these kids are are not consistently under the ministry of the Word of God. They're seldom exposed to other adults who love Christ. They're more influenced by unbelieving coaches and unbelieving mentors than those who follow the truth of God. And the result is families and churches, families and their kids, church life diminishes. And all of the God-ordained means by which God draws children to Jesus are diminished. So here's the question. What's the difference in the attitude of the disciples who would keep their children, keep children away from Jesus, and the attitude of parents who do not secure for their children every possible opportunity to be exposed to Christ and to the things of God? Now, I'm not saying that we can identify bringing children to church with bringing them to Christ. It's not that simple. You know that. Uh, many of us know that we brought our children faithfully to Jesus in terms of bringing them faithfully to church. And uh, they may not be walking with the Lord today. We know that. However, if we're too busy for worship, if we're too busy for the fellowship with other Christians, what is the message we're telling our children about Jesus and the significance of the things of the kingdom? We're basically saying that the kinds of things that Jesus ordained in this world, the church, the life of the church, the preaching of the word, the sacraments, the fellowship together, we're saying that these kinds of things that God ordained for his people, for their spiritual benefit, and as we shall see, with the children in mind, with the concern that they come to Christ, we're saying by our activities and what we do, those are not important. We're somehow believing that God is going to be pleased to take care of our children even if we don't consider our children's own spiritual needs of first and primary importance. So, what should be our view of children? Our view should be this. We should give our children every possible means that we can to be exposed to the things of God. If we don't, we're essentially saying to our children that the horizontal things of this world, as opposed to the vertical, we're saying the horizontal things of this world are the things which have the greatest significance. But when you reach that period of time in your seventh decade, which is my current time in life, and you look back and you see that the shelf of trophies your child got for showing up at soccer never as important as the kind of love and concern and care that Sunday school teachers and other people in the church displayed and gave toward those children. So, 
Here's the important point. The negative example of the disciples indicates that we need a proper biblical perspective, one that the culture will not give us. The culture will move us in the wrong direction. So that takes us to look at the right direction. The right direction is given for us here in our understanding of Christ and children. So moving on to verse 14. We read that Jesus saw what the disciples were doing. And he was indignant. Now, this word indignant uh, falls within the, the domain of words that are associated with anger. Jesus is upset with his disciples. He's upset in an angry sense. Uh, that indignation is the index of how strongly Jesus disagrees with the actions and attitudes shown by the disciples. Again, you know, their attitude reflected the cultural disposition, which was to relegate children to a kind of distant, secondary status spiritually. So Jesus disagrees. He flatly rejects the idea that the kingdom of God has nothing to do with children. We see this in several things which he does and says. First, he gives a command. You know, we, 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 we sometimes seen this, see this printed on, on a nice little Christian art. Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not. And we think it's a nice, quaint little statement. It was uttered in indignation. It was uttered as a command. It was a sharp rebuke. It was strong medicine to a very serious illness in the disciples' perspective. This was not something Jesus would have written in a Hallmark card. It was a strong, as we say, slap on the side of the head. It was a command given in righteous anger by the Lord Jesus himself. Let the children come unto me. Do not hinder them. Now, now the lesson here is that children of believing parents are no less important than their believing parents with respect to the matters of the kingdom of God. Understand that. It's something that all Christian leaders need to understand. It's something that all parents need to understand. A couple of weeks ago, we made the point that if it matters to you, it matters to God. If your children matter to you, they matter to God. But here Christ is basically saying, you need to understand that your children's spiritual life matters to Christ, therefore it must matter to you. So, we're under Christ's command not to hinder children from Christ, but to open up the way in every way we can for them to come to Jesus. Now we see secondly why Jesus gives this command. He says, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. 
Now, this is a very important statement. We need to be very clear on its application. Jesus is applying this to the children of those who are believing parents. The context here and the history of what Christ is doing makes it very clear. Jesus isn't teaching that we can associate the children of pagans or the children of secularists or the children of humanists or the children of Hindus or the children of Muslims or the children of every other sort of religious or non-religious perspective. He's not saying that we can associate those children with the kingdom of God. He doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible makes it clear there's a distinction between children of believers and those who are not. It's about the children of believers, believers, those who are themselves children of Abraham that Christ is speaking. It's these parents, their children, that Jesus is describing. It's to the people of the covenant that Jesus is speaking. It's about their children, but none others. Now, let me just stop for a moment. Don't think that what I'm saying is that Jesus doesn't give a wit about other children who, aren't, who don't belong to the, 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 the faith tradition of Abraham. Don't think that. That's not what I said. We have all of these incredible statements in Scripture about God's deepest concern for those who are lost. But I'm talking about what Jesus is saying specifically here. Because it was a problem within a religious culture. That within a religious culture, they didn't see the significance of their own children. That's what we're talking about here. So, so, so don't misunderstand this. Understand this. What is the focal point of Christ's concern? It's about the status of children of believers with relationship to the kingdom of God. Jesus has, under, in these words, he has the deepest regard and concern and care for the children of believers. Now, notice this. If Jesus says the kingdom of God belongs to them, how can we deny that they're not also members of the covenant? Now, that gets into a particular theological point with us and our Reformed Baptist brethren in terms of understanding the children and their status before God. But if they are considered according to what Christ says here, such are the kingdom of God, children of believers, Wherever there is the kingdom, there's also the covenant. They can't be separated. But Jesus also then says more. There's a characteristic possessed by these children of the kingdom which defines for us saving faith. Christ goes on to say in verse 15, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Jesus is teaching about entrance into the kingdom of God and he's teaching about saving faith. Now, for those who have been taught the law, uh, for those like the culture in Jesus' day who have been taught that law-keeping and earning one's own righteousness and earning one pos one's position within the kingdom according to keeping the Mosaic law, that that was the key, that was the entrance, that's, what's, that's how you got into the kingdom. Being a good, law-abiding Jew. That's how it was. The message Christ is giving here is profoundly different. A different way of looking at everything connected to God. Jesus is saying that God's kingdom isn't gained by keeping the law. Rather, 
It's received. This is the significant point here. You don't go to God's kingdom. God's kingdom comes to you. God moves to you. Christ the King comes to you. God moves His kingdom to reign and to rule in you. It is His movement toward you, not your movement toward Him, which is the way of the kingdom. The entrance into the kingdom is to receive the kingdom. Not obtain it, not achieve it, not find it, not secure it for yourself. It is to receive the kingdom. And the way of receiving is like a child. Now, what's typical of children receiving things? What's typical? Remember, Jesus is taking babies, infants, as part of his illustration here. The way they receive at the youngest of age is with an attitude of trust and helplessness. Our entrance into the kingdom of God is only by a childlike faith and trust and utter inability to do it on our own. Children, infants, the most helpless of children, they display in their nature the essential characteristic of faith, which is utter trust. So saving faith is this kind of trust. Trust in the king who brings the kingdom, which we receive this way. So Jesus is here teaching what? He's teaching that his kingdom can and does come to children. Even the smallest and youngest of children. Even the youngest of children can be saved. Their spiritual need is no less than the spiritual need of adults. It is the spiritual need of children which must be the central concern that we have for our children. So the right direction we need is to have this perspective, understanding what our children need, need begins here. Now, finally, thirdly, parents and children. Here I want to connect verse 13 and verse 16. I want us to know some, some observations here that can be helpful to us about parents, these parents, what they sought from Christ on behalf of their children and what Christ actually did. So, to repeat this, to emphasize this, these were Jewish parents, believing parents, parents of the covenant. Uh, if they weren't, Mark and Luke particularly would have noted it because they're always picking up on Gentiles in their stories. Matthew, not so much because his gospel was primarily for the Jews. But Mark and Luke, always sensitive to when something isn't Jewish. So these parents had this Jewish hope in the Messiah. They were believing parents, knowledgeable about Christ so far, sought him out on behalf of their children, and they're seeking Jesus at a much deeper spiritual level than Christ being a healer or an exorcist. In these parents, we can recognize 
a relationship toward Jesus that's spiritually vital. Believing parents, parents who seek Christ on behalf of their children. They do this in the absence of any apparent pressing or urgent need. There's no evidence that there was any urgency or crisis that these parents, were, in fact, were, were reacting to with respect to their children. But they felt the rightness of seeking Christ's blessing upon their children. They were not looking for any miracle working on the part of Christ. So that raises the question, then, what exactly were they seeking in bringing their children to Jesus? You recognize it's something much more than anything on the horizontal level of life. We also would note there wasn't any kind of ceremonial law-keeping in seeking Jesus. Jesus and the law had nothing in common in that way. Nor was it any superstitious impulse. I want Jesus to touch my kid so my kid can have good luck. No, it wasn't anything like that. What they sought from Christ was something they believed Christ could actually give to their children that their children could not get anywhere else. They, they sought from Christ what was for their children's spiritual and eternal welfare. We can see this if we look a little more carefully at verse 16 at exactly what Jesus did. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. Now just pause for a moment and picture this. Now, now don't picture this like some of your story, but Bible pictures where Jesus has all these bunch of kids sitting on his lap, hanging around him and so forth. That's not really the accurate portrayal of what's happening here. Well, certainly Jesus is sitting, but we know from Luke that there are infants here. It means that Jesus is taking these children one by one into his arms while he's sitting, holding one child and holding a child in one arm, and then, in the rabbinic sense, placing his other hand upon that child's head and then praying his blessing upon that particular little child that he's holding. Now, imagine there's 8, 10, 12, 15 children. And for each one, Jesus ministers in a particular way. Nothing wrote, nothing ritualistic about this, it's Christ interacting with and doing what this mom or mom and dad want him to do. He's taking each one of those little children, putting that child in his arms and praying for that child. I want you to picture what Jesus is doing in light of one of the great messianic passages of the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 40. Listen to these verses, 9 through 11. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. 
Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Verse 11, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who have young. That's what Jesus was doing. Looking at his lost sheep. Taking the little lambs into his arms and praying and asking God's blessing upon them. Do you think he was praying only for the blessings of this life? Do you think that's what this is all about? Give them health, wealth, and prosperity. Or do you think his prayers for God's blessing upon these little ones would be that in this life they would come to know life eternal. And do you think the son's prayers to his father ever go unanswered? That's why our greatest concern is parents. Even our greatest concern as a church must be all we can do to bring all the little ones to Christ. We can't trust our culture but we can trust Jesus who declares to us that his kingdom can come to even the smallest of children. Even the youngest of children can receive the king and the kingdom. And saving faith is utter trust in our utter helplessness to save ourselves. So what we understand from this is we all have a calling. We all have, as parents, as a church, we have a calling to do all that we can to minister to the spiritual needs of our little ones, to do all that we can by the means which God has appointed to bring them to Christ in our lives and prayers and teaching, but especially our prayers, to be seeking Christ's eternal blessing upon their souls. Father, help us, we pray, to have the heart of Jesus toward all the little ones to love them, to care for them, to encourage parents in the training of them to be a church who cares deeply for them. Oh, Lord, so that we would be like Jesus, Father, like Jesus. And then we would also be like the littlest among us, having a faith that is utter trust in our helplessness in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.